We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, February 21st, 2022. This is a critical week for the Major League Baseball lockout negotiations. After the owners have been dragging their feet, they appear to be getting very serious. Plans for this week include the owners and Major League Baseball Players Association meeting daily. And the heavy hitters from the owners' side are going to be in attendance. Hal Steinbrenner of the New York Yankees, John Henry of the Boston Red Sox, and Ron Fowler of the San Diego Padres will be joining Colorado Rockies chairman Dick Monfort who had been the point person from the owner's perspective before these three are going to join him. And assumingly there'll be other owners as well in the room. The players association will have their committee of players in attendance, including the leaders, Max Scherzer and Andrew Miller. Now that everyone who has the power to make decisions on behalf of each party, could we see a deal get done this week? We'll discuss. It was also The opening weekend for college baseball, some big-time performances and surprising series upsets went down, but the talk after the opening three games is the technology certain schools are implementing. Catchers are wearing earpieces, getting pitches from the dugout. Vanderbilt, all nine of their players, are wearing watches, getting a notification of what the next pitch sign is from the dugout. In an age of trying to avoid sign stealing, are these good ideas? And could they be implemented by minor league or major league baseball in the near future? Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, before we get started, uh, our good friend Rob Hart uh, with WBBM News Radio in Chicago, who blesses us with the intro to the podcast for years. I just want to give him a shout out for winning the Illinois News Reporter uh, Award as far as a News Reporter of the Year Award uh, as he just got the midday shift at WBBM. So congratulations, Rob. You have earned it. 
And you've had this wonderful road that's been very wavy and a roller coaster at times with your radio career. And I'm so happy that you stuck at WBBM and you've been doing amazing work and you get this show promotion and you win the Illinois News Reporter of the Year Award. Awesome stuff. So congrats, Rob. It's always a pleasure when I uh, go home to be flipping through the uh, presets. I'm usually driving my parents' car uh, when I'm home. And, uh, you know, they have uh, WBBM on their presets. And more often than not, he's on. Like, even if, you know, it's a weekend shift or he's filling on vacation for whatever reason, uh, he's on. I also tend to run into him at ballparks. Uh, I've run into him um, not planned, you know, at guaranteed right field. I've run into him at, uh, uh, we ran to him in Milwaukee during the meetup unrelatedly, uh, ran to him there and then also uh, nationals park one time. So <laughs> I have the, uh, it just, it's, it's, you know, whether it's vocally, whether it's over the air, whether it's in person, I have the tendency just to encounter him. And it's always a pleasure. I have ran into Rob at Disney world. <laughs> <laughs> uh he was there with his family and uh we we how many robs are there I, I don't know maybe he just clones himself we had a beer on the boardwalk so for those that know walt disney world and the resort layout uh you know the boardwalk by the espn zone uh that was a good time i was not expecting to run into rob hart at disney world so rob hart a man of travel and the illinois news reporter of the year congratulations buddy now, I would be amiss if we also didn't start this show discussing one of your favorite sports, Jim, curling. The Winter Olympics wrapped up, and we saw some classic gold medal matches in both the men's and women's competitions. Yeah, it was a it was a cool story for those who'd follow curling for at least like a couple of Olympic cycles. Even more rewarding for people who've been following it longer. I can't speak to that because I think I started following in between like... Yeah, I started curling around, I would say 2012 thereabouts. Uh, so yeah, I've been knowledgeable about it for a couple of Olympic cycles, and then you know the the, the world tournaments and so forth. But Nicholas Adine of Sweden, Eve uh, Muirhead of Great Britain, they'd you know had some. Yeah, Adine's been one of the top curlers in the world, but he's never been able to get gold, and he was thwarted uh, last Olympics by John Schuster's miracle team. So that, you know the U.S.'s great story came at the expense of. Um, you know, somebody who probably would have been putting the cap on his career four years ago and said he had to wait to get it done. And his body's been through hell. Like he's had so many back surgeries and such that can't really count on him being around, uh, at least actively curling at the top of his game four years from now. So this was kind of the year for him to get it done. And he got it done against, uh, Bruce Mowat and Great Britain who, yeah, I like them as a team a lot. I like that they have a lammy and a hammy, <laughs> they're uh, sweeper. So you just, when you hear them uh, shouting that in, uh, with the, with the sky, Scottish brogue. It's a lot of fun, um, but they're all in their 20s. So they have a lot of good years ahead of them. I, I was hoping that Adine would get it done this year. And then Muirhead's been, you know, inconsistent. Like she, when she's at the top of her game, uh, she can get on, on heaters like this, but also has some really just inexplicable losses at times that, uh, you know, makes it uh, hard for them to, to really, you know, gain any headway or, or be considered along the lines of like the, the Swedens or Canada's. So when you look at the fields now, like the U S was, you know, it's disappointing that the U S wasn't able to follow up on its gold from, uh, the last time around. But when you look at how deep the teams are and how, much better the world has gotten because even Canada is scratching its head a little bit, uh, trying to figure out like you know how to get back at the top of the sport. 
just getting to the medal round, getting to the top four teams um, was tough and, and an honor. And there's no uh, disgrace in losing to Canada or Great Britain or Sweden because they're all good. It's it's uh, everything's legit when you get to that point. So that they were that they finish out of the medal was you know disappointing, but not a failure. Just getting to the the final four. Uh, in a field that's that stacked and with the U.S. not really dedicating a whole lot of resources and, and curlers being on their own to to be on that world stage, like it's still an achievement to get there. And I think the women were close. Uh, they were a little bit, uh, they started hot and then they the wheels kind of came off a little bit towards the end. They might be close. They might be like a tweak or two away. Um, but I think right now they're probably in the position that the U.S. was two Olympics ago and hopefully next year will be, or the next Olympics will be uh, their launch into, uh, you know, at least national renown. As a currently novice, I did enjoy the hell out of the Sweden and Great Britain match, especially the 10th frame. Am I saying this correct? End. End. Yep, 10th the 10th end. end. Uh, that was really intense. Uh, the types of shots Great Britain had to make just to stay alive, to, to send it into extras. And I, I look forward to uh, curling again in four years. I believe the next Winter Olympics is in Paris. Uh, no, it's not. Milan. It's in Italy, Milan. Yep. Um, yeah. But uh, actually, if if anybody's interested in still wanting to follow it, it's hard to you know follow it uh, with U.S. broadcasting. But if you uh, are able to get ESPN three, if, if you have like a cable login or U, uh, YouTube TV or have access to ESPN otherwise and can log in, the uh, Briar, which is the Canadians Men's Championship, starts on March fourth, and that's basically every day for two weeks, and that's. Uh, basically Olympic grade curling just contained to one country. Like th- that's a, that's a deep field. Uh, the shot making is, is, you know, pretty much top of the line there across the board. So um, if you're still trying to, you know, if you wish that there were more curling and uh, you know, just ways to get into it and follow more teams and kind of get interested in learning about, um, you know, what players are good at what and what, how the strategies differ. I think the Briar is a really good example of that. And that starts, I believe, March 4th. All right, awesome. And also the broadcast, the Canadian broadcasts are way better. They don't cut out to commercial in the middle of the end, which drove me nuts watching the U.S. coverage. Just you know, doing the first couple shots and then you know, um, dropping out and then being there for the, the second vice stone and, and having no idea what happened in between and needing the broadcasters to kind of fill you in on what happened. It's a really lousy way to watch a game. So I think the uh, Canadian broadcasts are a lot more cohesive and understanding exactly how ends are being built. It would be like if you're doing Olympic broadcasts of baseball and you just cut to the second out of an inning. Yeah, kind of. You know, you know how it's annoying it is when, uh, you know, WGN, when, when the White Sox were on WGN and they tended to miss the first pitch. Yes. And how annoying that was. But ultimately, it didn't take you out of the inning. It's just more like, oh, you know, you're a professional you're broadcasting major league baseball. You shouldn't miss the first pitch with regularity as much as you do, but ultimately didn't take it out. It'd be like, you know, having the WGN tendency, but with like a runner on second and, and missing a few pitches and and just being like, okay, this is getting serious. And now there's nothing. Now there's a Howard anchor ad or whatever. So that's, I think uh, what was really irritating uh, for, you know, curling fans watching an American broadcast, but the uh, Canadian broadcasts are really, um, you know, they obviously know what they're doing. And, and Vic Router, who is like the voice of Canadian curling, like he's, he's enjoyable. He's like a Doc Emmerich in hockey or just like the voice of curling, uh, you know, for generations, like, you know, highlights have been described by him. And it's a lot of fun uh, listening to him build the tension. Well, I did have plans to do 30 minutes of curling talk on this podcast because there hasn't been a lot of baseball news. <laughs> 
I can do that. Let's go. However, things rapidly changed last week after it was announced that the went over to the Major League Baseball Players Association Union Office and the Players Association made their counterproposal. The meeting lasted 15 minutes and pretty much sum it up as here's our dead on arrival counterproposal. Send this back to the owner so you could tell us that it was dead on arrival. However, mm-hmm. after this 15-minute exchange, uh, what was reported was that the chief negotiator for Major League Baseball, Dan Harlem, and the Players Association lead negotiator, Bruce Meyer, had a 20-minute one-on-one conversation that was reportedly, quote, candid and heated. And it has led to a dramatic change on the upcoming meetings that are happening starting today on Monday, February 21st, and could be happening every single day this week. The people that need to be in the room to make decisions on behalf of each of their parties are finally going to be in the room to work out a new CBA. Supposedly, they are going to meet again daily until there's a new deal. So Jim, Mm -hmm. is this welcome news or is this just more propaganda smoke to tease baseball fans that an incoming deal is still ways away? I think it's welcome news. Uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee immediate success. And I can see like plenty of posturing happening while it's going on. But I imagine if, you know, they're meeting every day and everybody's flying in. And, you know, I go back to and, and, and why I've been relatively optimistic about the season starting on time, no matter <laughs> what the rhetoric's been like, and just how there have been no active signs to point to saying like, hey, this is a good sign. Like, it's been all bad news. The news has been reported. Uh, and, and this is a case, too, where no news is bad news because no news means they're nowhere closer to a deal. I kept coming back to the idea that Rob Manfred said it would be disastrous for the industry to miss games. And given that the owners locked out the players they would be the ones responsible for that. Like you, they can only spin it so much, you know, the players can, and, and truthfully can say, uh, they can start the season at any time. You know, it's, it's on them. We're waiting. Uh, and, and so for him to say that it'd be disastrous, that struck me as a way for the league to say, you know, pat itself on the back and say, we've made heroic concessions, even though we feel like we've given up too much. We realize that the health of the game and we need to, you know, show up for the fans who are so great to us. And we're going to you know, make these sacrifices and accept this subpar deal to get it done because we, we have the health of the game in mind and then the players can do the same thing. Uh, that's, I think, you know, that, that's been my interpretation of like the way the arc of the uh, negotiations would go. It's just a matter of like, you know, whether owners really, you know, hard up against it and, and, and really just wanting to wreck the union. But, you know, with the MLBPA dropping, you know, bigger uh, requests like getting to free agency faster or an age-based free agency um, and really just boiling down to upping the pay for pre-arb players a little bit and raising the CBT threshold. That's really not much money we're talking about. Like in the scheme of, you know, the hand over fist money they're making as a league, uh, you know, record revenues year after year. Uh, that's really, I think Joe Sheehan put it around 5%. They're really arguing about. And that's not enough to lose games and, and, and self-fulfill the prophecy of a disastrous outcome that would be entirely attributable to the league. So that's what, what made me think that 
they can't miss games over this, especially after saying that they can't miss games over this. So I think this is what it would look like gathering every day and, and being physical, not, not, uh, uh, not, not taking a, a proposal and flying away, like actually staying there and committing to having counter proposals ready. And I think uh, the things they've said were non-starters, like upping the CBT threshold or uh, increasing the super two pool to where it's like, you'd be odd if a player wasn't super two, everybody gets a trophy. Um, it's a case where I, I think they can say like, well, we, we said this, you know, it was an answer before, but because we need to start these games, we can accept raising the CBT threshold to 225 million or 230 or something like that. Some number they said that was impossible to reach before. So that's, that's what makes me think that this is ultimately going to happen. Even it might shave some, some games off spring training and, uh, Basically, you know, when when it, where you're looking just kind of like big picture, uh, I think that uh, there there's really nothing in their way. Yeah, speaking of spring training, the league has already announced that spring training games have been delayed until March 5th, in which the Players Association was pretty quick to have a retort that they could still be playing games on time if the league lifts the lockout. But we've had that discussion. Numerous times on this podcast in the past weeks, the lockout is doing two things. One, not putting the ball in the court of the Players Association where they get strike at any time, and that would be a different type of work stoppage. Mm-hmm. Two, uh, it also prevents the idea of an owner going rogue and with the CBT expired, spending as much money as they want on player payroll, which it would be fun in theory. Uh, I don't think the White Sox would be that team. Steve Cohen and the New York Mets may have a $300 million payroll, uh, but it, it, it would be fun from a distance to see a team do that. But of course the league with the lockout is preventing that situation from happening. I am shifting my previous stance. I have felt that opening day would be delayed Jim, by two weeks and the season would start on Jackie Robinson day. Now, I'm being optimistic, and I'm going to shock you, Jim. I think we have a new CBA by Friday, February 25th. Hmm. The reason I think that, because now you have the decision makers in the room. I have been very critical, especially on Twitter, about how these negotiations, negotiations in quote, have been going on between the league and the Players Association. To have these 15-minute meetings where... Here's our proposal. Okay, thank you. I'm going to turn around and then speak to my party, and then I'll come back to you to share with how they feel. That is such a slow, tedious process that goes nowhere because you never get a feeling of how the other party is actually feeling about your proposal. You can't ask follow-up questions. There's zero negotiating going on. Mm Here's my offer. Your offer sucks. Here's my offer. Okay, well, your offer sucks. And that's what we've been hearing for at least a month between the league and the Players Association after the league took 43 days off. But now the decision makers are in the room and specifically having the chairman of the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Padres at the table, I think is key because you make a great point about the competitive balance tax. And we have said it a number of times on this show that that is a huge sticking point between the union and the league. 
these three teams would get royally screwed over on the new CBT, especially the Yankees. You're already at the threshold. So you can't sign Freddie Freeman without going past the threshold. You cool paying a 50% tax on top of whatever salary Hal would take to sign Freddie Freeman. Like that would be the honest question from the players association directed straight to Hal Steinbrenner. And you can Mm -hmm. make that same argument to the Red Sox and the same argument uh, to the San Diego Padres. And I believe the chairman of the Texas Rangers is going to be at the table and they've spent like a half billion dollars already uh, in free agency this offseason. I feel like the the ones that are taking over the conversation are going to be those three and not Dick Manfort, who I think is just oblivious, especially the way that he handles his own team and was really never a great choice. Thank you, Dick, though. I got a steak dinner out of your uh, incompetence running these conversations with the league. So yeah, the decision makers are in the room and they're planning on a meet daily. That's huge. Now you can actually have bargaining talks on top of that. It's being reported. The players association in this one-on-one between the chief negotiators, the players association has made it very clear to the commissioner's office If there is no 162 game season in 2022, there is no playoff expansion in 2022. Now, ESPN is getting the broadcast rights for that new playoff round. They have already reduced their overall spend with Major League Baseball when they renewed from $700 million a season to $560 million during the regular season. Unless... There is a new playoff round Mm -hmm. and nobody knows for sure just how much money ESPN is willing to pay to have the exclusive rights of that new playoff round. But I do not think it's a coincidence after that was reported that if the players association, if the players do not play 162 games in 2022, there will be no playoff expansion in 2022. All of a sudden, Hal Steinbrenner, John Henry, and Ron Fowler are making themselves available this week to meet with the Players Association. It's got to be worth a lot of money to the league. It's got to be worth a lot of money to the owners. And a handshake deal needs to happen by February 28th. And a new CBA needs to be ratified by March 3rd to avoid a delay to opening day. And because so much money is wrapped up in these TV deals, Jen, Mm -hmm. that's why I think I am shifting gears. I am now being optimistic and I'm going on a limb to say we will have a new CBA signed by Friday, February 25th. Yeah, that that makes you know uh, a fair amount of sense to me. Although that's basically my my stance the whole time. And and thinking about it, just when you look at the shape of the negotiations and how like the first proposal by Major League Baseball Players Association didn't have a response from the league for forty three days, the pace of the negotiations and the stalling and basically meeting every six days or whatever that was basically I think just to run time off the clock and make it impossible for the union to get headway on any bigger issues they wanted and and kind of go back and forth with like oh an age based free agency twenty seven how about twenty how about thirty twenty eight you know like just trying to 
I think by batting that down early and then, you know, basically not responding uh, and dragging their feet and doing so, it makes it easy to show up for this last week and say like, okay, we need to get done. We can't really entertain any extreme new systems here. So we can give you a little bit of a bonus pool and we can up the CBT, but that's all we're willing to do. We got games to play. Uh, yeah, it's better than it was sign this deal. I think that's, you know, basically I think the, league's approach in negotiating and even though they try to you know do some gaslighting with uh you know the their idea that locking out the players would make them negotiate faster which didn't turn out to be the case uh at all um the opposite in fact happened um if you can ignore what the league was saying their actions basically are pointing to an idea that this last week was basically what they were waiting for and just hoping that uh they could buy enough time and and get the union to drop the most ambitious of their platform uh, in order to make the rest of a deal more tolerable. But they've already done that. Though. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to spend a lot of time on the competitive balance tax and they're going to spend a lot of time about league minimums in the you know bonus pool, basically getting players paid before the arbitration, right? Or accelerating arbitration for some players. And one of the owners is going to be Mark Antanasio, who is the chairman of the Milwaukee Brewers. See, you you have this situation where you're going to have these types of owners at the table. I don't think they're going to have a lot of problems with what the Players Association is proposing. Now, if you had the owners of Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Tampa Bay at this table. Oakland. Oakland. I would go reverse, Jim. I would say opening day is not happening until June 1st. Because uh, these owners are would be severely impacted, and that would just show from a league's point of view that we're more concerned about these guys uh, than the teams that are actually spending money. I mean, Mark Antanasio signed Christian Yelich to more than a $200 million contract, so he has spent some serious money. He also signed Ryan Braun to that long-term deal as well with mm-hmm. the Milwaukee Brewers. So you have owners... That are, that are at the table who have spent serious cash. So that's why I, I am hopeful. You have, you have the right collective. Now, there is some paranoia that's going on because Jeff Passan had to ask me anything. Of course, Jeff Passan from ESPN on Twitter. And somebody did ask him, is it still true that you need at least 23 yes votes from the owners to ratify a new CBA? And Passon said yes. So the paranoia is that could eight owners team up and sabotage all these efforts that are happening this week? It is a possibility. I don't know how likely, but you really delved into the history of the late 80s and, of course, 1994, Jim. Mm-hmm. If Jerry, is, there, is there a Jerry Reinsdorf present day out of these owners? Mm-hmm. That could lead up <laughs> a collection of owners and go against what these talks are going to be happening this week. I don't think so, just because in 94, they were trying for a salary cap. They were trying to basically break the union and and there was that major issue. This year, 
I don't see that big issue. I don't see anything really changing the way the game operates. Like maybe they have a draft lottery. Uh, maybe they have like just making it a little bit harder for teams to rebuild or maybe a bit more punishing the teams that choose to rebuild uh, the way the Orioles have done it. Uh, you know, 50 win seasons, you know, multiple years in a row. But when it comes to like the whole idea of how teams operate, I don't see any team being dissuaded from trying the White Sox path. Maybe not the Orioles path. Maybe not like losing that hard. Um, just especially with TV deals, maybe being a little bit more uh, delicate than they had been in the past. Like not the rock solid investment that uh, they'd been for years. Like that bubble is showing signs of, if not bursting, at least maybe deflating for some teams or a, a pocket of the market. Uh, but when it comes to just like the idea that, you know, I, I don't think this deal is going to change the way teams operate. I don't think it's going to change the, just it's, it's not going to blow up any team's five-year plans. It might make it slightly harder. You know, if they're counting on like a, uh, top five draft pick, um, your or top three draft pick, like two years from now, and then maybe they're not be, going to be guaranteed to get that, but the major league baseball draft being what it is, you know, that's not necessarily a death sentence the way that like the, you know, losing out on the top three pick in the NBA when there are three, you know, lock players who are going to be fixtures in a, uh, in a rotation. That's, I think, uh, you know, that, that doesn't change the way teams operate. It doesn't interrupt rebuilding. It doesn't, uh, prevent future sell-offs or retrenching, rebuilding, what have you. So I, I don't see that kind of, uh, issue that causes owners to say, we can't operate. This new CBA is going to kill us. So there you have it, folks. Jim and I are optimistic that maybe the next time we talk and maybe a new episode of the podcast later this week, we got breaking news and we've got a new CBA for Major League Baseball for the 2022 through 2026 seasons. And that episode would be talking about the fine details of the new rules that will be happening for Major League Baseball. And then we have what could be the craziest 24 to 48 hour period of baseball activity. That moment when the lockout lifts and free agency resumes and trades could happen. And there might be some emergency podcasts that happen, especially if the White Sox are willing to spend and willing to move very quickly as Rick Hahn teased uh, right before the lockout got instituted on December 1st. I'm hopeful because I'm kind of tired of talking about negotiations between these two parties. And again, I, I'm really hopeful and I'm being optimistic now that I think with these key people in the bargaining room that we're going to have a new deal by this upcoming Friday. The lockout will be lifted. And for all those that are worried or concerned about opening day and your opening day plans, you wouldn't have to worry for those that had spring training tickets for the first couple of weeks in March, eh, that's going to be touch and go. So just be patient. They're going to be issuing refunds uh, for each of the teams in Arizona and Florida for games missed during spring training. So be on the lookout for that, especially if you had tickets for the first couple of spring training games before March 5th. But if it doesn't happen this week, uh, fingers crossed that something happens soon. Because again, if they don't have a handshake deal by February 28th, if there is no CBA, new new CBA ratified by March 3rd, then yeah, opening day 
is going to be delayed. So they're under the clock. There is a tense pressure right now at both sides to get a deal done without an opening day being delayed. But we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk some college baseball as they are introducing new technology in-game that might help combat sign-stealing next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. College baseball had its opening weekend, and we saw some big-time performances, some surprise series upsets, both Mississippi State, the defending champions, and Vanderbilt, the runner-up last year in the College World Series, both lost their home opening series. While that's part of the national conversation, not as much as about the tech that we saw on the field. Catchers wearing earpieces to get calls from the dugout for pitches. And in Vanderbilt's case, all players are wearing watches on the field. So every player is getting the pitch call from the dugout. Jim, what do you make of this new tech that's being used in college baseball? I think it makes sense in college based on the way games have been taken away from catchers. Like game calling has, um, you know, the, the catcher who... I, I th- and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the college catcher who is in charge of the entire pitching staff and what they throw is a rarity is, is the incredibly yeah. rare. Uh, so it seems like for college, it makes a lot of sense. I think for minor leagues, maybe it makes some sense. Although with minor leagues, you know, given how many teams are talking about in markets and such, like, are they going to want to implement this technology in the minor leagues, you know, in, in you know, various, um, you know, low stakes leagues. I don't know if it's that important, but I guess, you know, it's a good, well, when it comes to, I'll ask you since you watch college baseball, how big of uh, an issue is pace of play in college? A lot of time is spent on the pitcher and catcher getting the pitch call from the dugout where in major league baseball, where people complain and the fact that there's not a pitch clock is that a hitter can step out of the box and take their sweet time or go through their their routine, their pre-swing routine, and get it in the box and getting ready to hit. Mm-hmm. The batter's not in the batter's box, so everyone's got to wait until Tim Anderson adjusts his gloves and or Jose Abreu's got to get some more pine tar at the top of his helmet <laughs> before he's stepping into the batter's box. And it could take like 30 seconds. Well, in college baseball, after a pitch is thrown, 
especially last year, and I hated this. You saw a lot of wristbands last year being worn by pitchers. Mm -hmm. So both the catcher and pitcher would look to the dugout last season. They would get whatever sign, just like college football, and then both would go to their wrist to look at the wrist play call sheet that they had. And they would, based on the signs, supposed to know that they're both looking at the same thing, and that's the pitch that's being called. And I had some college baseball players DM me over the weekend and said that there was just too much confusion with that. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was watching the games this weekend, it was the first time that I saw a catcher wear an earpiece and they had a battery pack. And I thought, oh, this is cool. The broadcast has got the catcher mic'd up like we've seen in Major League Baseball All-Star Game, right? Or in the Field of Dreams game. Uh, Maybe the announcers are going to talk to the catcher during the game. And then no, no, the announcers are saying on the broadcast that the catcher is getting word from the dugout using a walkie-talkie to tell the catcher what the next pitch needs to be. And the catcher is then giving the sign and the pitcher is not shaking off the catcher and they're throwing that particular pitch in the location that the coaches want them to throw. There is severe micromanaging going on in college baseball. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of it. But the Vanderbilt program is taking an extra step. And when I saw the pitcher wear a watch, that's new. Like, I've never seen a pitcher wear a watch before. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like the iWatch, like the Apple Watch, uh, which has created a lot of controversy in Major League Baseball as far as the sign stealing uh, with the Astros, the Yankees, and the Red Sox. But then the broadcast was saying that no, every player in the field for Vanderbilt's got that watch. So after each pitch, the players can look at the watch and they're getting what the next pitch is going to be. And it's just not the pitcher and catcher. The first baseman's getting it. The shortstop's getting it. The center fielder's getting it. So they can make adjustments need be based on what the upcoming pitch is. So everyone on the field knows what that pitch is going to be. And they don't have to peek at the catcher and understand what the catcher signs are to the pitcher to know what that pitch is. And I, I'm intrigued by that method. And there are some on Twitter that really don't like it. And I can understand not liking it because maybe that's just taking a step too far. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated. And not every program has this because it requires a lot of money. But it appears that the SEC teams definitely have this technology. They're going to use this technology. And it's just going to be interesting as the season progresses between especially mid-major programs and the elite baseball programs, what the differences are, especially pace of play, between the teams that don't have that technology and the teams that do. Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about pace of play and, and um, getting it and throwing it and that whole debate about you know, making the game more aesthetically pleasing, I thought, and I was misguided in my optimism here, that cutting down on mound visits would have sped up the game or because I'm thinking like Joe Maurer when he was behind the plate and how many times. Oh, yeah, that was ridiculous. Yeah, he went out to like at least once an inning, it seemed, maybe a couple times, multiple times in an at-bat. Um, I thought that that was like a big, you know, limiting teams to six and then five mound visits was going to make a big deal uh, of a difference in just the flow of the game. But no, it just, that was more treating the symptom than the actual disease. That was just, um, 
the game slowed down other ways. Like either they would just step off the mound and, you know, go through signs again, or now they have the, you know, the, the codes in their, you know, in the brim of their hats or, you know, on their wrist, you know, behind the plate. So they have to cycle through a whole bunch of different sign plans based on situations and they end up stalling no matter what. So for, you know, if, if sign stealing has advanced and you have teams like the Astros or the threat of a team like the Astros, you know, looming over the game and, uh, you know, signs just are going to be more complicated and slow down the game. Perhaps this is inevitable, like some kind of techno, you know, technology based solution. It's not aesthetically pleasing. Like I do like the, the signs, like even just thinking about like playing baseball as a kid, like imitating the big leaguers, like when you're squatting behind the plate and throwing out a bunch of finger combinations, even though you can only throw a 40 mile per hour fastball, <laughs> you know, just going through the uh, combinations and just, you know, pretending like you're a big league catcher and you're a big league pitcher looking in and shaking off and, and uh, having fun with that. Like that's, you lose something there aesthetically. Um, I, I always cringed when I saw, you know, a uh, you know, pitchers check the hats like that didn't happen before or the wristbands or the whole uh, kerfuffle with the Rays, I think losing. No, Kevin Kiermeyer took like a, a game plan card. Oh, yes. I who, who they're playing that, you know, there's a collision at the plate and Kiermeyer found like the game plan card and they were upset. Like, you got to give that back. And like, do you like, I don't that, think you know, so. Those didn't exist until. Yeah. Like that. They hadn't existed until recently. I don't think there's a code around it. So you know, if you have to rely on that, then I guess that's your fault. <laughs> so uh, I tend to have a more old school approach of just like the, you know, looking in and, and shaking off and going by feel and having a guy like Mark Burley who never shakes off and having a relationship like James McCann, and Lucas Giolito, where they call eight changeups in a row. I don't think you're going to see eight changeups in a row from a dugout, uh, a coach calling it. I, I don't think you'd have Ethan Katz doing that. Well, maybe Giolito given their uh, relationship, but just, I, I don't see that kind of, unique um relationship developing and that would be a shame but you know if the situation is such that the game is just going to be more prolonged as pitchers and catchers feel like they need a more complicated sign system in order to make sure they're not stolen then i don't know if there's a way to get around it i just hope that the catchers are in charge because you know as you mentioned and, and having watched college baseball here and there and, and being kind of bummed out by the idea that, you know, they're looking in the dugout and that they're having their hands held, I think is just a little bit of a, it doesn't quite feel like real baseball almost, or it feels like it's like not quite close enough to high level if they need that much assistance in calling a game like that. That's just kind of how it felt to me. Maybe that's making too big of a deal of it, but just it, it annoyed me. Nevertheless, advanced baseball with training wheels. You don't have this in high school. Yeah. Now you do have pitch calling from the dugout, but the the coaches are giving hand signals to the catcher, and then the catcher is relaying that pitch call to the pitcher. So there's always that in high school, and that's been around for a really long time. More micromanaging. You're you're trying to get the catcher to be more focused on the runner on base or blocking the pitch than learning on how to call a game. Whereas you're just trying to get the pitcher to focus on the quality of pitchers, pitches at that level. But for college baseball, because you get, again, with baseball, you can, you could either be drafted at age 18 straight out of high school, or you got to play a couple of years to be draft eligible sophomore or your junior year. So you got to play at least three seasons of college ball to be drafted in the major leagues. I'm, I've always been an advocate 
and why I like, for example, Georgia Tech. And they had Joey Bart, who managed the pitching staff, was a very high draft pick by the San Francisco Giants. And that's why I thought Joey Bart had a huge leg up in his professional development because he had that experience calling the pitches and coming up with the game plans with his Georgia Tech teammates as far as the pitchers because that's the experience that you need to carry over to minor league baseball and then eventually to major league baseball. And now who I think is the best catcher in college baseball, Kevin Parada of Georgia Tech, is taking that mantle. But the more and more I'm seeing the wristbands and I'm looking at catchers peeking at the dugout and now they're wearing earpiece. So clearly they're looking at the coach that's using a walkie talkie to send them or tell them what the next pitch is. I just feel like development wise that that's training wheels. And if you have a catcher, a good example Mm -hmm. and someone I'm going to be writing about on Wednesday in the MLB draft watch report, and he's already on my draft watch board, Logan Tanner, the catcher from Mississippi state. This is his third year catching and being the starting catcher for Mississippi state. And he was one of the key cogs in their national championship team last year. Give him the reign and the freedom to call the pitches with his pitchers, especially with Landon Sims, the Friday night pitcher for Mississippi state, because Logan needs to learn how to do this. Cause if he gets drafted by any major league team, the a ball club that he joins, the expectation is, you know how to do this dude. And the answer is they do not because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're not getting that opportunity. And I feel like the technology that college baseball is using is not so much for sign stealing. It's more of an ease of use to send pitches from the dugout to the players to avoid any confusion of what the pitch is so you don't have any mix-ups. But now that we're seeing this implemented in college baseball, and we know that sign stealing and cheating is a big problem in Major League Baseball, that's why I'm posing the question, I brought this topic up, Jim, is this coming? Or Mm -hmm. a variation of this is coming. Maybe something where... The catcher's wearing a wristband and they press a combination of buttons and the pitcher is wearing a watch and they look at the watch and that's the next pitch that's coming up. But then what do you do? The pitcher doesn't like the pitch that you call and they want to shake you off. Like you don't have shake-offs anymore? Mm-hmm. I just, I find it weird. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess they could shake off and just get a different yeah, then, combination. But then you're them. having opposing teams, the Houston Astros, uh, having a camera on that catcher <laughs> and their hand and what buttons they're pressing yeah. into their wrist. And I just don't see I just don't see an Ethan Katz or any pitching coach in Major League Baseball going the micromanaging way. I mean, they spend so much time pregame going over their game plans for their next mm-hmm. start for their next opponent. And the expectation is you are a professional. You should know what the game plan is. You should know on how we want to attack these hitters. And if there is a hiccup, I'll come out there and I'll talk it over with you guys and I'll cover my mouth doing so. So they're not reading my lips, but that's the expectation. And I don't know. I don't know if major league baseball is going to go this way, but we're going to see it this year in college baseball. So far, 
from the college players that have been cool enough to DM me, they like it a lot better than the wristbands. Mm-hmm. So if it works well in college baseball, maybe we could see this in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I could say it's coming, but not anytime soon. Like not to where like, yeah, I feel comfortable putting a year, maybe even a decade on it, just because I thought pitch clocks would have been at the major league level by now. And just, it takes a lot to implement that. And as you mentioned, like the, you know, professionals have a lot of pride in the way the game is done, the preparation required. And also I think that just, it's a level of autonomy the players enjoy like you you know when it comes to managers and which managers are respected i think the hands-off players managers are the ones that like let them do their thing trust them the ones that are yeah the the managers that are uh have trouble gaining respect of the clubhouse are ones that are felt like they're puppets or ones that are felt like they're just you know uh responding to binders of information or just what the front office you know what buttons the front office is pushing so I think they like the autonomy and it is like a mark of being a major league pitcher and a major league catcher that you know what to call and that the responsibility is on them and, and you know, catchers being such a, a miserable position to play when you look at just the wear and tear on their bodies and the foul tips and the, uh, just the, the, the surgeries required and how they often look. Uh, at the end of their careers with the shape of their you know, fingers going in a bunch of different directions and how many knee surgeries and hip surgeries and whatnot. Like, I think the, the being in control of the game is a big part of the draw, being involved in every pitch. And if you're just catching every pitch and not calling it, not you know, checking out of that um, part of the game, I think that on one hand, it could make it, you know, uh, a case where maybe it opens up catcher to a lot more players and you have a lot more athletes behind the plates because all of a sudden you don't need to do the preparation to be a game calling. And because of robotic umps, you don't need, uh, hmm. you know, to be a framer. You just need to be able to catch fastballs and throw well. And you can, might have a team might have six catchers then because they don't need to have that personal relationship with a player. Like I could see it having some interesting, uh, developments to where like maybe teams would want to do that just to increase the versatility of players behind the plate. But ultimately, like you said, I think the markings of the position and what's enjoyable about it, watching it as a fan and trying to figure out how they go along. And even like watching Steve Stone uh, pick up signs, I think is fun. Like trying to figure out the signs and really what's coming. Like it's an interesting part of the game and to have that lost, I think would be a shame. But uh, if it turns out that the pace of play moves so much faster and there isn't that obstacle of just wondering if the pitch they're throwing is being picked up illegally by the other team and just makes the game so much uh, free flowing, you know, just making it more of a a organic pace the way like it was played in little league and all the way up the ladder, even like, you know, Mark Burley era, like just get it and throw it. Uh, I think the, like pitch clocks where a lot of purists were against pitch clocks, you know, baseball doesn't have a clock. You don't have a shot clock, you know, just ticking down. That's not the way the game is played to being, you know, watching in the minors and say like, Oh, that's not that bad. Uh, you know, the, the aesthetic uh, improvement of having pitchers not standing on the mound for 30 seconds is uh, a welcome. We'll, we'll accept that in the trade-off for having a clock ticking in the background. I think you could see the same thing, but just given that we haven't seen pitch clocks in the majors yet, I, I don't feel like it's, it might be inevitable, but not in a way that's like you have to worry about, you know, next crop of catchers coming up or even the crop of catchers after them. Maybe even like three or four groups down the line before you even have to think about that. It is fascinating. And 
Again, we just kicked off college baseball, and we'll see in how the upcoming games and how this works. And if any other programs or conferences decide to jump on this bandwagon of this wearable technology by at least the catchers wearing an earpiece behind home plate. It it was fascinating to see this past weekend. I should, yeah, I should go to a Vanderbilt game. Uh, just, you know, I, I, they're tough tickets to come by, especially against SEC opponents. But if I could find like a, um, you know, unremarkable out-of-conference opponent midweek and just kind of show up and get a, you know, get a good seat off StubHub or something like that and just look up close to see like how the catchers are looking, how the, you know, who's looking at what. And when and why and am I noticing it? Does it blend in the background or is it? Yeah, might be worth doing, especially if the lockout drags on. And you could read as far as my recap of the college baseball opening weekend, who had big time performances, the players that I tracked this weekend from an MLB draft scouting perspective and uh, which players I'm a bit concerned about, even though. It is just the opening weekend of the season, and you can read that on Wednesday morning on SoxMachine.com for our Patreon supporters. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Speaking of Patreon supporters, not only do our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the weekly 2022 Major League, Major League Baseball Draft Watch Reports, but they also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website and the first opportunity to acquire our new Sox Machine swag. And they do that at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where we have monthly plans starting at $2 a month. And you can save 9% or one month free if you sign up with an annual plan. And Jim, I just received my pre-order t-shirt mm-hmm. and I love it. And I'm glad that you finally got this set up. How are we looking as far as the in-house stock of uh, inventory of these shirts? It's on the Sox Machine store right now. The uh, A bulletin went out to our Patreon supporters, but uh, now I will be opening up to the rest of the listenership and readership. Uh, if you go to SoxMachine.com, it'll be a featured product or the Sox Machine store, which is in the nav or SoxMachine.com slash shop. You'll see these t-shirt there and the stock on hand is the stock on hand. If somehow there is like an overwhelming demand, I can set up another pre-order or back order situation. But right now, uh, basically it's first come first serve. So have at it. Yes. I love this shirt. So again, go to the socks machine store and purchase the little inventory that we have. And again, when we have uh, new shirt ideas or new socks machine swag, we'll have pre-orders and our Patreon supporters are the first ones to be notified of these new swag items. So again, if you are either new to Socks Machine or you've been a long time lurker and you have enjoyed our work over the years and you wanna help support us, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine and sign up today. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave us a review if you haven't already on either of those platforms. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. Your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.